Lord, we just thank you that you're just always, always opening our eyes to understand things that will change our lives and bring us into a deeper rest and deeper peace. We just pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would hear things today that would encourage us, help us understand more fully the awesomeness of the new covenant of grace, this new covenant, not like the law, but a completely different covenant. Lord, I pray by the power of your spirit that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see. You would help me communicate what you'd have me share with your saints today. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your awesomeness. Thank you for the peace of God that passes understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> you know, the, um, this thing about mixture is so important to understand. I, I think I will share a few thoughts just about that, and it would be like a two-parter maybe today, but to see where the Spirit leads on this. Um, but mixture, understanding mixture is really, really important because um, one thing, I love that verse where the Lord said in Jeremiah, and it's quoted in Hebrews, that I make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the covenant I made with them when I brought them out of Egypt, which is the law, Sinai. That phrase is a powerful phrase. God is saying that I'm making a new covenant and it's not like the covenant I made with them when I brought them out of Egypt. And Hazel reminded me that last Sunday of this, she said, because I haven't said that phrase in a long time. And Hazel said, you know, you used to teach that, you used to, when you preach, you used to say that the new covenant was not like, you quote that Jeremiah verse in Hebrews. And I said, I forgot about that verse, actually. I haven't quoted that in a long time. She goes, that was so powerful. You know? So I want to say that again today after having said it in years, maybe. But it's a powerful, powerful verse because when God says something is not like something else, he doesn't mean it's a, it's a little, little different, that it's slightly different, that it's... Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's mostly like that with just some stuff added. You know what I'm saying? Because most people, really, most believers look at the, the new covenant as really the law with some umph to it, with the power of the spirit. Like Clark said, God did not give us the spirit of God so we could keep the law. And most believers have in their mindset that, you know, God doesn't change. And you can't just throw out something that God spoke on Sinai about. I mean, that's the Ten Commandments. I mean, he's serious about that stuff. And, you know, he doesn't change. Scripture says God doesn't change. So that's got to be still there for us. So this new covenant must be something we have to add to the law. We must use what God has done in this new covenant to give us power to do that old covenant. And I'm telling you, it's rampant thinking out there, forgetting that God, yes, God doesn't change. The person of God doesn't change, but he certainly has the right to change his covenants. And he did exactly that. He said in Hebrews, I find fault with the people because of this covenant, because they can't keep it. Therefore, I will change the covenant. That's what he said. He said, I've, I, want a, I want a covenant where I cannot find fault with my people. 
And I find, I find fault with my people because they cannot keep this covenant. They cannot be perfect. Of course, that was his plan all along to bring man to the end of himself. But he certainly can change his covenant. And that's why Hebrews says, when there is a change of the law, there's a change of the priesthood also. So God changed the law, he changed the covenant, and he changed the priesthood. He moved from a Levitical priesthood, which involved the covering of sins daily, monthly, yearly, covering, not taking away. He moved from a Levitical priesthood to a superior priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, which he foreshadowed when Levi paid tithes through Abraham to Melchizedek. It wasn't a surprise. God God didn't come up with this new idea. It was all foreordained. But God can certainly change his covenant. But he doesn't, he doesn't change. So, yeah, Pam? Sorry, I, I was talking to our legal counsel this week about a regulation, a banking regulation that's changing. And I said, Tammy, they can't do that. You can't change the contract in midterm. And she said, you can if you redisclose the terms and conditions. You can modify that contract. And isn't that what he's doing? He, 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 he changed the terms. He, he changed the, the contract. That's right. He can disclose and change the terms and conditions. That's a good, yeah, that's a, that's a good analogy. Yeah, that's exactly right. He's the one who made the contract, and he can terminate it and start another contract. Right. Same person, same God, right. but new contract. That's exactly right. And if you try to add the new covenant to the old covenant as a codicil or amendment to that contract, it does not work. And God never intended that to work. In fact, he said you cannot be established in grace until the first covenant is out of the way. So he had to remove the first covenant that we might be established in the second covenant. And as long as in our thinking we have a mixture of law and grace, we will never be established in grace, the scripture says. So that's exactly right. So I love that he will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, a new covenant not like the covenant he made with Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. He's specifically pinpointing the, the Mosaic covenant, Sinai, the law, you know, so forth. Not like that, not like that. And so then we have to say, well, what? So when God says something is not like that, he means it's 180 degrees different. It's not just a little different. It's 180 degrees different. That's why a lot of Christian um, ministry out there today is really very close to law because they don't, they don't see the, the vast difference of the new covenant of grace. And a lot of Christian counseling is really law-based and flesh-based. A lot of Christian counseling is really the flesh trying to fix itself. And so they delve, in, delve into the flesh and talk about what, why you think what you think and how you feel what you feel and how you can get a, in control of your emotions and, you know, how you can work with this and work with that. And, and some of it's good because it helps people just realize, you know, you know what's, what's going on in their lives. But it, counseling that is geared to the flesh to fix the flesh will never work. Never work. And you may have... It's, a, it's really a, a seduction because you're seduced into thinking that I'm making progress because I'm learning all about the flesh. It's like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It seduced Eve. I mean, this can't be bad. I mean, what's wrong with knowledge of good and evil? I mean, good. It says good, knowledge of good, knowledge of evil. What, I mean, what could be possibly be wrong with knowing all about good and evil? And the Lord says, don't go that way. That's the way of death. 
Because man is always trying to fix himself as opposed to seeing a revelation, a new and living way that is 180 degrees different from the law. The law was all about the revelation of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So any kind of counseling or ministry that is focused on sin is not from, it's not from the spirit. Focused, I said. There, there are times when, you know, you realize this is flesh, this is spirit. I'm not saying you never mention sin, never talk about sin because sin is real, flesh is real. But as far as bringing us out of sin, out of the flesh, out of bondage, it's not about focusing on sin. That's why the Pharisees didn't get Jesus because he was, they were all about sin as they tried to bring righteousness to people and tried to model righteousness in their own way and tried to bring people to, to do the right thing. They were all about sin, all about sin. I mean, they would see someone lame and they'd say, okay, was it his sin or his daddy's sin that caused this? Because that, that's all they think about, sin, 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 sin. So when Jesus comes on the scene and he's not focused on sin and he's got sinners all around him and he's eating and drinking with them and he's forgiving them and he's talking to them. I mean, and he's a woman caught in the very act of adultery is not stoned to death like they wanted to do because it's all about sin. And he goes, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. They didn't get him. They didn't get him because he was not about sin. He wasn't focusing on sin. Why was he not focusing on sin? <coughs> Because he had come to take away the sin of the world. So from his perspective, all these sins he was seeing out there were not a problem. That is all going to be gone in a matter of a few years. The fullness of time when I'm offered up. That's not the focus. So he knew that. So he knew that's not the focus and that's not the way out. That The law says... The law is all about that. Through the law is the knowledge of sin. Through the law, transgressions increase. The law is a strength of sin. Law, sin. Law, sin. Law, sin. The law of sin and death. Law, sin. But he who would fulfill all law and take away sin was bringing something 180 degrees different from what the law had. And that's what boggled their minds. And they, and to this day, we're tempted to mix the two covenants because we don't see this, this difference. The tree of life on the other end of the garden talks not about knowledge of right and wrong and, not, and doesn't open your eyes to your nakedness as that tree did. Rather, the tree of life talks about a whole new and living way of living by another. Tree of life, not knowledge of life, life. So the tree of life is all about living by another life within. That life brings a light Jesus said, he who follows me shall have the light of life. There's a light that comes from that life that does something. It opens our minds. It reveals what? The law had a light. It reveals sin in the flesh, nakedness. The light of life reveals what? God, the face of God. So what we, our focus now is a focus on the glory of God in the face of Christ and what he did in bringing us into union with himself, this whole new dynamic, which is galaxies away from man, as far as the heavens are above the earth, so is this different from the ways of man, Jesus said, the scripture says, the prophet says. As far as the heavens are above the earth, this way of from law to grace is that different. Because in the law, you're always trying to get somewhere and do something to be something. Focusing on the sin so you can fix it and try to get better. Under grace, you're there. The Christian life, as I said in my blog a while back, the Christian life is not about trying to get somewhere. The Christian life is an awakening. 
The believer is awakening to what is in union with life, for he is the life. And once you believe, you're placed in the Christ. Christ is placed in you. The the prayer of Jesus is confirmed in, in John 17. Father, as I am in you and you are in me, I may be in them and they in me, that we might be one. So the moment we believe we were placed in Christ, as Paul says, it is of God that you are in Christ Jesus. It's of God because you believed. And so now you're in him and he's in you. So now the, the Christian life is not about trying to get somewhere. You are now seated with him in heavenly places. And so now there's an awakening taking place as baby kittens born blind, our eyes are opening. We're still kittens. We're not going to become a kitten when our eyes are open. No, you're still a kitten, but you don't know who you are. You don't know who you are yet. You don't know how awesome you are yet. You don't know where you are yet. You're blind. You don't know you're in the heavens. You're not on earth. You don't know you're not from below yet. You're learning because the eyes are open. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, my God. So the Christian life is an awakening to what is because of him. That's the tree of life. That is worlds apart from trying to get somewhere. I mean, you are in the rest. It is the rest of God. Hebrews says, we talked about that one Sunday, his rest. After he has completed all things, after he has worked, after he has created, after he has done all things, he rested from his work. Even so, he who believes on him, on what Jesus did, enters into his rest because the work is done. So this whole way of living, I mean, it changes your life. I mean, it changes your life. It changes how you re- relate to other people. Like here's, here's the Lord relating with sinners, eating with sinners, uh, uh, you know, accused of a, uh, a gluttonous, ma- gluttonous man, a wine bibber because he goes to parties and weddings and, and, you know, he turns all this water into wine. What's he thinking? You know, all these gallons of wine and that's, you know, it's his very first miracle. It's like, what's the deal? Where's, where's the seriousness? We have to get serious about God. We have to get serious about sin. We have to get serious about the fear of God. We have to get serious about this. We have to get serious. We have to get serious about holiness. We have to get s- None of that came from Jesus. Now, it did come from John the Baptist. And Jesus one time told the Pharisees, you know, John came eating locusts and in the desert, and he was serious about sin, like you won't. You didn't listen to him. I come eating and drinking, having fun, partying with my people, and, and rejoicing as a bridegroom does with, with his bride. You didn't listen to me either. So it doesn't matter whether, whether they're serious or not serious. You just don't hear, you're just not listening to God. He, he called them on that. But I, I, thought, I thought it was interesting that he contrasted him with John the Baptist because John the Baptist was serious about sin. In fact, that's why John wondered if he, was the, if he was the Messiah at some point because John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was the last. He was, he was the one that came with all the fire to prepare his way. And then he saw what Jesus was doing and he goes, are you the one or should we look for somebody else? Because this doesn't fit. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm saying fire is coming to cleanse the earth and and you're out forgiving prostitutes. I mean, I, this doesn't fit. And then Jesus said, tell John, the lame walk, the blind see, quoting the prophets, and blessed is he who's not offended in the grace of God. See, even John was not sure this grace was different, very different. You know why they, Jesus said John was the greatest of all men? He said, yet he did, though he did no miracle, he said he was the greatest of all men, greatest of all men born of a woman, Better, greater than Elijah, greater than Moses, though he was, never did a miracle. Why was John the greatest? It wasn't because he was 
all in the desert eating, eating locusts and honey either. It was because of the message. He was the only one that had the privilege on earth of saying, behold the lamb. It was his message. All the other prophets pointed to Moses himself said, God will raise up another one like unto me. And who, who does not believe on him shall be cut off. But he was speaking about the future. Only John, in time and space, could look him in the eye and say, there he is. That made John great. The greatest man. There he is. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It's awesome. The covenant of grace is all about him. It's all about what he has done, not us. It's not about sin. It's about him taking away sin. It's this awesome covenant that literally opens the heavens. We live under an open heaven. I still hear preachers talk every now and then about, about uh, getting out of fellowship with God, in, in and out of fellowship with God. That is, the, that, of, that is a phrase in the church today that is, is, needs to just go away. <laughs> it needs to go away. It doesn't make any sense. It's not truth. It's not logical. It's just ridiculous. How in the world can you be out of fellowship with God if you're in Christ? What is the basis of our fellowship in the first place? Is it our obedience? Is it our seriousness about sin? Is it our commitment? The basis of our fellowship with God is you simply believe that he took away your sin. And God placed you in him and him inside you. A union has taken place. So no matter where you go or what you do, he's with you always, always, even until the end of the world. And that presence is what causes us to get back on track, so to speak. If we get off track in the flesh, what causes us to get back on track in the spirit? It's his presence. It's his love. It's his grace. It's the goodness of God that leads a man to repentance. The goodness of God leads a man to repentance. So um, it'll change our lives. It'll change how we relate to other people. We'll be like Jesus was. You know, we didn't, he didn't focus on sin on, in other people's lives because he knew that the answer was not to turn them back to themselves, but to turn them to him. That's why when Peter said, you know, Lord, for, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. He would say, don't be afraid, Peter. Believe on me only. Come to me. And we too minister to people in the same way. I don't care who you're talking to or what they're involved in. You can have a twinkle in your eye and say, yeah, but I know somebody. And it's not a problem. Not a problem with him. He's already taken it away. He's already reconciled you. I know somebody. I know somebody who can help you. I don't care how bad it looks because it's not about them getting better. If it was, it'd be hopeless for all of us. See, it's so cool. I mean, you have a whole new perspective on how to talk to people, how to minister to people. You don't look down on people ever again because you know, apart from the grace of God, there go I. I mean, I th- that's what, something that's very important, I think, that, that you, you and I cultivate a sense of um, pity, pity in a good sense of the word, and mercy toward people. Never look down on people, never. If you find yourself ever looking down on someone because of their sin or whatever it is they're doing, check yourself. That's flesh. That's just the flesh. You should, you should have a heart that, like, that just breaks when you see people in sin or need or hurting or whatever, because that's how God feels. He's drawn to that. He's drawn to that. He's, he's, God is not repelled by sin. He's drawn to it. Because sin is a symptom of, an alien, of alienation from God. 
Or if it's sin in a believer, it's a symptom of a believer believing a lie and not the truth. So God is drawn to, to people who are in sin or in weakness or need. He's drawn to it. He is drawn to it. He loves, he loves to, to come alongside, comfort, and instruct and help. You know, here's that woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and she's like coming noonday because she's so ostracized by the other people. And she comes to get water in the noonday away from the other women. And Jesus speaks to her, and the disciples can believe he's even speaking to a Jewish woman, you know. And, and he's speaking to her and talking to her about water that she could have, and she never thirst again. See, he didn't even, he didn't even, it's not about the sin. And, um, and when he, she said, when he said, uh, bring your husband, he was going to see if, he, if she was going to be real with him. And she was. She goes, I don't have a husband. I've had five husbands, and the man I'm living with now is not my husband. And, she's, and Jesus said, well spoken. Like, what? I mean, most prophets and preachers would say, repent. Five divorces, and you're living with a man. How dare you talk to a holy man in that condition? Change your life, and then come back, you know? Not Jesus. Jesus goes, you've spoken well. He's been real with me. He spoke the truth. He knew it all anyway. That's why he said, that's why he asked the question. He knew exactly. He wants to see if she'd be real. And then, then because she felt so comfortable in that atmosphere of no condemnation, she goes immediately into asking him theological questions. Like, I got a question. I've always wanted to know this. Okay, you Jews say we worship you're supposed to worship down in Jerusalem, but we Samaritans, we worship up here because that's the mountain where Moses blessed, proclaimed the blessings on Israel. So we have our own temple up here in Samaria, so we worship up here. Which one is right? Jesus smiles and, oh, woman, oh, woman, I tell you the truth. The hour is coming, and now is. And the true worshipers won't worship in Jerusalem or even in Samaria. They're both wrong because something new is coming. The true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth, meaning they will worship not in a location on earth, not in Jerusalem, not in Samaria, not in a physical place. We have not come to the mountain then that can be touched on earth. That's what that means, touched on earth. We've come to Mount Zion. A new place is coming to worship. The true worshipers worship in a different realm in the spirit. Something wonderful is coming to earth. A door will be opened that no man can shut. A new creation shall come forth from a resurrection and a new people will be born in a day. That people will still walk the earth, but they will not be from the earth and they will live in union with God and God will be in them and they will be in God. And that's the reality, the truth of which these temples speak of in pictures and types. That's the reality. Isn't that awesome? And she was drinking this in like, oh my gosh, what is this? You know, this new thing that's coming. And and I love what he said here. He said, he said, woman, the water I'll give you to drink. If you drink it, if you'll drink it, it will become in you a spring. I love that. You know what that means? That means every unbeliever, every unbeliever out there can drink of the water, but they have to choose to drink. Scripture says your words are like a 
cold drink of water to the world when you speak of him, when you turn their eyes away from themselves and their hopelessness and you speak of him and this great hope, this grace. Anybody in the world can drink of this water, but some refuse to drink it because they don't believe it. But if they will just drink it, he said, if you'll just drink it, if you'll just taste it, it will become in you a spring. That's speaking of union. You taste it by receiving the gospel. And if you receive it, you become born again and union takes place. And out of your innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. The same water you tasted now becomes a spring and rivers through union with him. A new covenant, not like the covenant I made with Moses. Not like that at all. This is a whole new deal, which is why it cannot be mixed the hour is coming and now is. Not, a, not, this, not this mixture, but a whole, new, a whole new thing. That's what Jesus meant when he said, you know, a man does not take an old shirt who has a, that has a hole in it. He's referring to the old covenant of law there. A man doesn't take a, a shirt with a hole in it and go to the store and buy a new shirt and open up the package and takes a brand new shirt and sees the size of the hole and then cuts out the piece out of the new shirt to fit the hole in the old shirt. I mean, right off the bat, we think that's ridiculous. But that's exactly what we do when we try to mix the two covenants. We take the old shirt and the new shirt and we put them together and we go, look, I know this new covenant is awesome. It's going to fix the old covenant. I'll take a piece of this new shirt. What did Jesus say? He said, first of all, that piece will not hold because that old shirt has already shrunk, but the new piece is not shrunk. And Jesus said, when you throw that in the wash, the new piece is going to shrink and pull away and it's not going to hold. So it's not going to work, number one. Number two, you just messed up a really good shirt. (laughs) That's what he said. But that's what we do when we mix the two covenants. Same thing when he said, you cannot put new wine in old wineskins. Old wineskins, we know, were the, the goat leather, goat skin, or some kind of skin that, that would, would put, they put the new wine in, into the new skin, and as the new wine would ferment, the, new, the, the uh, new wine would stretch with the fermentation, and then it would harden, and then the wine would be ready to drink inside that old wineskin, okay? So you'd have the, the wine fermenting with new wineskin stretching and then hardening. If you took that after you finish the wine out of that old hardened canister or wineskin, if you took that and put new wine into the old hard one, there's no room to expand. And Jesus said it would crack and break when the fermentation took place inside there, inside the wineskin, and the wine would spill out. You would ruin the wineskin, just like ruining the shirt, and you would ruin the, uh, the wine. It would fall out and nobody could enjoy it. So what he was saying there was that you must put new wine into new wineskins. So what is the new wine? The new wine is this, this new way of living, this life, this new way of thinking. You've got to put it into a new mindset. The wineskin, in my view, is more of a mindset than anything else. A mindset which really manifests in a, in a, a body of believers. So it's like, it's actually a part of the church too. But and this is what's so cool, too. The new wine is supernatural. So is the new wine skin. It takes a supernatural container to hold supernatural life. So the mindset is something supernatural. It's a revelation, in other words. This new mindset, because as the Spirit comes in and expands, we begin to see with new revelation what this is, and then we begin to manifest in body life 
what this is. It's totally organic. It's totally uh, spiritual. It's totally life. And it's not like, like the old where it says, okay, we're going to do it this way because this is the way it's always been done. Boom, boom, boom. It's, it's, or this is the way, you know, the law says this. We've got to do this. It's like, no, the scripture says they who are led by the spirit of God, they are the sons of God. It's a whole different way of thinking. And that's why you see in the early church this, this loose community of believers with not a lot of rules and structure, but just a, a, a body of believers that gather with the Spirit giving gifts to the body of apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists, pastors, um, and then giftings of the Spirit of God so that we can minister to each other. But for what purpose? All the, the whole purpose is to reveal who Jesus is, that we might come to the fullness of that stature in a mature believer resting in what he has done, not tossed to and fro anymore by every wind of doctrine and every legalistic, as Clark says, every demonic legalistic teaching that comes down the pipe that says, oh, you're forbidden to marry or you're forbidden to eat certain meats or you're forbidden to do this. Paul says, why do you live, why do you do this touch not, taste not stuff as if you're living in the world? What, see, all that touch not, taste not stuff as if you're, Paul says, you are not even of this world. You're in him. You're complete in him. You can rest. God has fixed us. We can never fix ourselves. So as this growing awakening takes place, we are established in this new covenant, no longer tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, trying to combine law and spirit. The law kills, the spirit gives life. We're not under law, but under grace. I mean, how much more clear can it be? I mean, really, when you look at it, we're not under law, but under grace. The law kills, the Spirit gives life. God took away the old, that he might establish the new. You cannot be established in the new unless you're free from the old. I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the one I made in Sinai. I mean, how much clearer can he be? How many times does he have to say it? And how many different ways before the preachers out there finally get it? Instead of trying to put the believer under two covenants at the same time, which ends up with a shirt that doesn't fit right and with holes in a new shirt and all that kind of stuff. Isn't this cool? Yeah, it's a matter of throwing that O shirt away is what it is. It's like he's saying, throw the O shirt away and put on the new shirt and put on the new shirt. It's, just, it's the same truth you see in Galatians where Paul says, Abraham had two wives, Sarah and Hagar, Sarah and Hagar, two wives. They had two sons, Hagar, Ishmael, Sarah had Isaac. Paul says very clearly in the letter to the Galatians, these are two covenants. These two wives speak of two covenants. Sarah being the covenant of promise. God promised a son. Without you doing anything, it's a promise. You're going to have a son. Hagar is the picture of the covenant of law from Sinai. Paul says very clearly in Galatians, this is Sinai. And that covenant was not a promise. It was a conditional contract that if you did something, I would do something. If you didn't do something, I would do, not do something. It was conditional, contract, the law. And so Abraham and Sarah, I mean, Abraham and Hagar did something. They tried to make a baby, and they did make a baby, Ishmael. And they, 
it was a baby of the flesh because it was them doing it. It wasn't God's miraculous intervention at all. Hagar was young. She could have a baby. Sarah was old. She's not supposed to have babies. So it wasn't anything miraculous about it. And he just did it trying to fulfill God's promise to him and it became a mess. I think it's cool too that when God said to Abraham to take your son to the hill to offer him, you know, to, the, to Mount Moriah, I think it's very cool that God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son. He didn't recognize Ishmael as his son, but only Isaac. So here's, and which is also interesting, the, the whole Islamic teaching comes from Ishmael. And God doesn't recognize Ishmael. Take your only son, Isaac, which is very interesting. So here's um, Abraham trying to make things happen. And then God finally fulfills that promise. 20 years later, fulfilled the promise. And he had to wait till Sarah got completely, completely unable to have children. So it would be so clear. You know, God's like that. He, he waits till things come to a point where it's no doubt this is God. Amen. He does that. I mean, look at, look at uh, I mean, over and over again, you see him doing that. Look at, look at uh, Elijah calling down the, the, the prophets of Baal, you know, fighting Elijah. And Elijah says, knowing God, how he is, he goes, look, pour a bunch of water on the stones, pour, you know, make this thing so wet so you you will know I didn't have like a secret little match down here or something. And the fire fell and ate up the the rocks even. It's so powerful. Look at Israel. You know, God brings us to the edge of the Red Sea with the Egyptian army coming up behind us. Can it be any worse? I mean, can it be any worse? If we were going to survive this, it's got to be God. Moses lifts the step, fear not, stand still and see the salvation of God. This is God, you know, no doubt. Goliath, little David with a slingshot. Come on, God. Let him have Saul's armor at least. Nope. Boom. The sword of Goliath is used by David to cut Goliath's head off. The sword that the enemy uses after you will become your sword in your hand. His mocking of you will become what you will use to cut his head off because of your dependence on God. So here's, the, that's, that's God's way. That's his way. His way is to, is to make it like there's no way without God. It's, it's, it won't happen otherwise. What was I saying? There was some point I was trying to make before all that. Something about the, yeah, Sarah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay. So here's the two covenants. This is what I was trying to get to right here. Galatians, Paul says in Galatians, cast out the bondwoman and her son. Paul says, look what this means, saints, in Galatians. God is telling you, cast out the covenant of law, Hagar, and her son, the flesh. Don't try to do this. You can't do this. Cast it out. Galatians. Because there's only one covenant he recognizes, the covenant of promise. You are the sons of the promise. Sarah, God's covenant. And just as in the beginning, even now, Paul says, they who are born of the flesh will persecute those who are born of the spirit. And you're going to have Pharisees who are going to be on your case because you are trusting in another, resting in another, and talking about righteousness as a gift, and it will drive them nuts because they they don't get it. Because those who are born of the flesh will always persecute those who are born of the Spirit. 
Paul says in the Galatian letter, and I'll close here, Paul says in the Galatian letter that one of the tactics of the legalist is to, they separate themselves from you that you may seek after them. You ever had that happen? One of the tactics of, the, of legalist is to not include you in their meetings or their groups or their friendship so you'll feel like, oh, I gotta do something. I wanna be included. I wanna do something. I wanna compromise. I'll compromise to be included because they're, they, Paul says they'll separate themselves from you that you might seek after them. He says, don't do it. Stand firm in your liberty. And one day when they burn out, they'll come to you. Can I be a part of this? Because I'm burned out over here. I, this doesn't work. Isn't that cool? Don't mix the covenants. God says, cast out the bondwoman and her son. Stand fast, like Clark says, stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has set us free. And I love this phrase in Galatians. Paul says, actually, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. And the only, the only, the only caveat that Paul adds in the Galatian letter is a simple phrase that says, don't use your freedom for an occasion to the flesh, but through love serve one another. I mean, that's, oh my gosh. That's not heavy duty at all. I mean, it's like, I mean, he, the whole letter is about freedom and gift of righteousness and not under law, but under grace and everything. And the only little caveat in, in the entire letter about this freedom is just, you know, don't use this liberty as an occasion to the flesh because you can't. You can't. It's not, it's not going to help you. It's not going to be good for you. But you can. It's not going to be good for people around you either. But you can. But don't do that. But through love, serve one another. So cool. So simple. Lord, thank you so much for your awesome reality. Help us to see more clearly that you made a new covenant, not like the covenant you made with the house of Israel. Not like it at all. Renew our minds to the new covenant and all of its splendor and its glory and its victory. Oh God, thank you so much. You're so awesome. Grace, grace, grace upon grace. I pray a blessing on my brothers and sisters. I pray that they would be so blessed this week. I pray that there'd be a joy this week as we rest in a reality that is not of earth. Amen. In Jesus' name.